I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, post-operative endophthalmitis. One of our earlier papers actually showed that this, this markedly increased the odds of endophthalmitis at something like 20 times. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CMA activity. Jonathan Ung declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. You can participate in As Seen From Here by calling our listener response lines. You can ask questions of our guests or discuss the topics yourself. Listeners in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. Listeners in the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275. Messages left on the system may be included in future episodes of As Seen From Here. The listener response lines are in beta testing. You're supposed to hear a nice greeting welcoming you to the show, but for now, all that you'll hear is this. The person you're trying to reach is not available. Please leave a message after the beep. Go ahead and leave your message anyway. We'll still get it. All messages left on this system become the property of As Seen From Here. The full text of the release is available on asseenfromhere.com forward slash legal. Again, those numbers in the United States are area code 646-808-0231 and in the United Kingdom, 020-7558-8275. Be a part of the podcast. I'll repeat the numbers again at the end of the show. Endophthalmitis is a serious and, fortunately, infrequent postoperative complication, but its infrequency makes analysis difficult. Moreover, since large academic institutions tend to be the data sources for these analyses, the valid criticism exists that these studies are tainted by selection bias. It would certainly be preferable to study every case of endophthalmitis rather than what amounts to a sample. In the United States, this would be a difficult proposition, but this is not the case elsewhere. In its July 2005 issue, Ophthalmology published a population-based study of cases of postoperative endophthalmitis over a 21-year time period in Western Australia. The first author of that study is Jonathan Ung, and I'm pleased to have him as my guest today. I asked Dr. Ung to describe the design of the study. Uh, what we actually have been doing for the last couple of years is uh, conducting a population-based study into endophthalmitis after cataract surgery. And the paper that appeared in ophthalmology sort of described the, uh, um, the cases of endophthalmitis that we, we found. How we actually conducted the study, in Western Australia we have what's known as a data linkage system, which essentially links a number of health-related administrative and other databases at an individual patient level. So what we actually did was to use this database to, one, first determine all the cases of um, cataract surgery that were done in the state from 1980 to 2000. And then we then searched for patients who had the cataract surgery and then were subsequently admitted with endophthalmitis uh, subsequent to their surgery. And from this, we sort of had an initial group of um, cases of postoperative endophthalmitis. We then wanted to uh, cross-reference this uh, data source with other sources to make sure we weren't missing any cases. So what we did was cross-reference these cases with uh, three other data sources, the microbiology database and the anesthetics database at Walpert Hospital. That's one of the principal teaching hospitals in the state. 
as well as with the two main vitro-retinal surgeons that were practicing in the state at the time. And from this, we sort of identified uh, in total 213 cases of postoperative endophthalmitis. Jonathan, one of the points that you highlight in the study is that you used record linkage and cross-referencing. What is that, and why is it better than randomized case control trials? Yeah, sure. I, I think nowadays what tends to happen is people focus on the randomized control trial as the only sort of, in inverted commas, valid study methodology. But what we try to sort of emphasize is that you know the randomized control trial, whilst you know the most the sort of gold standard for testing treatment and intervention efficacy, you know, does not really give you an idea of what happens in the real world. Uh, the advantages of our study, it was population-based, and that basically means that we weren't restricted to just one centre or small group of surgeons, but we sort of looked at the problem from a, from a whole population basis. And I guess the advantages of sort of conducting such a study in Western Australia was that, one, we do have this data linkage system, and two, we're sort of a relatively isolated state. I don't know if your audiences are familiar with Western Australia and, and, and where we are geographically, but we're basically on the west, west half of the, uh, the continent, and we're sort of pretty isolated in terms of, you know, we've got an ocean on one side, but desert on the other side. And it's been shown that there's very, very little net uh, migration out of the state so that basically allows us to capture the uh, problem of endophthalmitis uh, from a whole population basis. And with this particular problem, it's important in the sense that it's not a very common problem, fortunately. Uh, so you basically want to obtain as many numbers as you can, and you don't want to be biased uh, from individual centres. Because another um, finding we found in a previous paper was that the rates of endophthalmitis do vary quite a bit from centre to centre. Jonathan, how comprehensive was this study? You mentioned 213 eyes out of 212 patients in the study. I, I have no sense of what the normal rate of endophthalmitis is in, in, in Perth. Does, does this represent all of the patients who had endophthalmitis over the study time period from 1990? Excuse me, from 1980 to 2000? Yeah, uh, it, the study was an entire study population. Um, being retrospective, we obviously can't be 100% certain that we've got every single case of endophthalmitis, but we think we've essentially covered almost all of them. Uh, in our initial stages, we actually looked at the ICD codes for endophthalmitis and linked that to whether the patient had cataract surgery beforehand. And in the end, we actually had to validate something like on something like 800-odd uh, cases, and not all of them were postoperative endophthalmitis cases. So we actually went out of our way to be over-inclusive to try and ensure we didn't uh, miss anyone from our study population. And the other advantage as well was because there were, were only sort of two principal vitro-retinal surgeons practicing for much of the study period, we also had access to their uh, personal surgical logbooks as well. So that way we were able to sort of ensure that we were capturing as, as, um, as mu much of the cases of endophthalmitis as we could. Jonathan, what was the duration of the study? Yeah, we looked at uh, cases of um, endophthalmitis from 1980 to 2000. So that's 21 years, right? That, that's correct. And how many of these post-cataract endophthalmitides occurred after capsular rupture? We did find that uh, that capsular rupture was uh, represented in the in our cases. Um, in all, it was uh, six, 16 percent uh, had a, had some sort of intracapsular breach. 
And what we actually did was we actually grouped uh, intracapsular procedures into this into this group of uh, posterior capsule breach because as part of the procedure there is an absence of capsule. Um, so despite that, there was an, a large number of cases that developed endophthalmitis despite having no no capsule breach. Did any of these cases follow cataract surgeries? that were combined with other surgical procedures? Uh, there were quite a number of cases um, where the cataract procedure was combined with another procedure. Um, of, of note, um, there were actually three uh, cases of postoperative endophthalmitis that occurred after an eyelid procedure. And one of our earlier papers actually showed that this, this markedly increased the, uh, the odds of endophthalmitis at something like 20, 20 times um, so definitely, you know, an eyelid procedure at the time of cataract surgery is, is not, not a good idea. How many of these endophthalmitides were culture positive? So, in, you know, we sort of divided the culture positive cases in terms of whether they were culture positive on an anterior chamber tap or a vitreous tap. And we found that it was roughly about one third of the anterior chamber taps were culture positive uh, versus about 55, 60% of uh, culture positive vitreous taps. Which pathogens were involved? Which ones grew out on culture? The vast majority of, um, of the, the isolates that were identified were actually coagulase negative staphylococcus. Um, so in, in all the gram-positive bacteria were represented about 86% of, of all the isolates, of which 60% were um, coagulase negative staphylococcus. You had mentioned a previous study in which there was a seasonal component to um, the endophthalmitis cases uh, and a, a, a trend in, in this study toward, towards the same. First of all, w what are the seasons like in Perth? We basically have a fairly Mediterranean-type climate. Uh, so we do, we do actually have four seasons, uh, all, and all our seasons are sort of um, opposite to, to the Northern Hemisphere. So at, at the moment, we're sort of in, in winter. Uh, but what's been actually happening for the last... Uh, 20 odd years is that there actually has been a sort of dec decrease in rainfall um, during the winter periods, but we still have a, have a reasonably wet and cold, cold winter, but we don't actually have any snow as such during winter. And the endophthalmitis cases, how did they vary seasonally? Yeah. When, when, uh, you mentioned our earlier paper, and when we actually looked at all the cases of endophthalmitis versus all the cataract surgeries that were done, we found that there was a slight trend to, to the um, winter months having a greater risk of endophthalmitis. But we didn't actually find any uh, relationship, uh, significant relationship between the isolates that were identified and the and seasonality. Uh, but that could be because obviously we, we don't have as large numbers um, in terms of the number of isolates that were identified. Jonathan, why do you think that there is this seasonal component? What do you think special about the season? The seasonality issue, actually, that, that's quite interesting. We so started exploring that because when we actually looked at our 21-year trends in terms of incidence rates, we sort of found that there was a cyclical uh, pattern to the um, incidence of endophthalmitis. And perchance we actually came across uh, this index called the Southern Oscillation Index, and that's a marker of sort of El Nino type effects. And we sort of noticed that it had a very similar pattern as well. And that's initially why we started looking at whether seasonality may, may be a factor. Uh, in terms of why this, uh, there's been some other work published out of Spain that's shown that conjunctival uh, flora does that. They've actually found a seasonal pattern to it, uh, and we just wonder whether 
somehow the environment, environmental factors such as temperature and rainfall, whether that's somehow mediating, um, mediating the, uh, the amount as well as potentially the uh, pathogenicity of the uh, conjunctival flora. What were the factors that you found that correlated with the patient's final vision? We sort of looked at final vision in terms of visual acuity at least six months after um, after their admission for endophthalmitis. And we found that there were a number of factors that were associated with a visual acuity of at least uh, 618. And in terms of those factors that were associated with a worse outcome, so in other words, a visual acuity worse than 618, we found that the growth of, um, of bacteria other than coagulase negative staphylococcus was associated with some like a almost 10 times uh, increased risk of poor outcome. We found that the visual acuity on discharge as well was significantly associated with a worse outcome. So if the patient left hospital with a visual acuity worse than 618, they were six times more likely to, to not have, uh, have a good outcome. We also found that um, that the use of oral antibiotics as well uh, was associated with a better outcome. So those that didn't receive oral antibiotics during their admission for endophthalmitis um, were three times more likely to, uh, to have, have a bad outcome. How did the antibiotic resistance change over the time period over which you studied these patients? Um, how did the time period from 1980 to 1994 compare to the 95 to 2000 time period? as far as resistance to antibiotics goes? So in terms of the um, antibiotic resistance patterns, uh, we found that in the two time periods, we basically split the time periods into two, uh, from 1980 to 1994, and from 1995 to 2000. And we found that um, over the two time periods, uh, for the gram-positive bacteria, that uh, there, there actually was zero resistance to vancomycin. So in both time periods, uh, there was actually no isolates that were tested that were found to be resistant to vancomycin. Uh, we did find that um, that for amoxicillin that there was a, a slight increase amongst the gram-positive um, to amoxicillin resistance. So the resistance increased from 42% to 53%. Um, we did find, however, that there was um, a, a trend also to increase resistance amongst the cephalosporins. So, so we found that um, the resistance to cephalosporins for, uh, amongst the gram-negative um, isolates um, ranged from sort of 13.7% for cephalosporin to about 20% for keftazidine. Um, and over the two time periods, we did find that there was a, a trend towards increasing uh, cephalosporin resistance. Um, although we didn't didn't find that this this was significant. Although you know again the, the numbers weren't weren't large when you sort of subdivided. Um, subdivided the population into these smaller groups. Jonathan, based on the results of the study, are there recommendations that you would make to clinicians? I, I think what these sorts of studies are important for is in terms of looking at uh, local local patterns of disease. So that, that particularly guides empirical therapy. Um, so things like knowing what um, what bacteria are being isolated in, in one study population is def definitely important from a local point of view, uh, because although we found, like many other studies, that the coagulase-negative staphylococcus cocci were the uh, most common um, 
isolate. There have been other studies, I know there was one from India, which showed quite a different trend to, to what's been shown before in, in North America and in Europe and, and Australasia. So I think that that's one important point about conducting these sorts of studies, is that it sort of does help guide uh, initial empiric therapy. The finding about the um, improved outcome with oral antibiotics, you know, there's, there's been one study that's been conducted in, in, in England that sort of showed similar results. And I think it would be an interesting exercise, you know, for other, others who are interested in this problem to sort of look at, you know, are they finding similar, similar results? Because I think this is sort of, this is where a randomized control trial may, may be um, sort of beneficial. Now, that said, though, is that to conduct a randomized trial looking into whether oral antibiotics is efficacious would you know, certainly require large study numbers. But th this is where the sort of two uh, study methodologies are complementary. Your retrospective type studies, they're a lot quicker to conduct, they're cheaper to conduct, and they sort of allow one to generate hypotheses that, you know, if it's consistent in other study populations, then leads one um, to be able to sort of, with some certainty, say, we, you know, we should conduct a randomized control trial. I think the only other interesting thing that we did find was um, it was quite convenient the way we broke the two time periods up in, in the sense that the earlier time period was before the endophthalmitis vitrectomy study and the latter time period was uh, after the endophthalmitis vitrectomy study. And what we actually found that was quite interesting was how the use of intravenous antibiotics has sort of plummeted subsequent to release of the endophthalmitis vitrectomy study. Whereas, um, and similarly, the use of intravitreal antibiotics has increased quite substantially. Now, another thing, and that was the main focus of the EVS, was uh, the use of vitrectomy. And we didn't actually find that there was really a substantial difference between the two time periods. Although that said, you know, there was actually quite a high use of uh, vitrectomy uh, in, in our state be before the EVS was published. Jonathan Ung, thank you very much. No, thank you. Jonathan Ung is a research associate at the School of Population Health at the University of Western Australia in Crawley, Australia. His paper, Management and Outcomes of Postoperative Endophthalmitis Since the Endophthalmitis Vitrectomy Study, the Endophthalmitis Population Study of Western Australia's fifth report, appeared in the July 2005 issue of Ophthalmology. <laughs> Now, a comment from our listener response lines. This is Dr. Uh, Mark Lustig. I'm a pediatric ophthalmologist in, uh, in New York City and a member of the uh, New York University Department of Ophthalmology, um, as well as uh, clinical instructor um, for teaching residents um, at Bellevue Hospital and at uh, New York University uh, Medical Center in Manhattan Eye Urine Throat Hospital. I wanted to just make a comment on the precipitous decline in strabismus surgery. Uh, podcast. Um, a relatively new pediatric ophthalmologist in the New York City area. Uh, I've discussed this, uh, this issue since the article was released, uh, since the article was published um, with several pediatric ophthalmologists in the New York area. They're in agreement that anecdotally there's been a mild decline in strabismus surgery, although not uh, to the degree uh, that, that the statistics showed uh, from the British data uh, or, from the, or from Canada, although not studied uh, statistically um, and anecdotal, um, most of the pediatric ophthalmologists who I spoke with uh, felt that the decline in surgery is likely a dilution effect uh, from 
partly from the increase uh, in the number of specialists trained in pediatric ophthalmology. Um, as uh, more specialists uh, have come out, uh, there's just less strabismus surgery to go around. Um, although prenatal care um, in, in, in this country has obviously increased uh, dramatically, there seems to be um, a slight decline uh, in the amount of uh, infantile strabismus uh, noted. However, um, anecdotally not to the amount that, that was noted in the UK. In addition to that, um, the, the author uh, himself uh, admits that it's difficult to, uh, the data was unable to show changes with specific surgeries. And uh, he admitted that uh, there were definite changes uh, in the way surgery is performed with, uh, with more bimedial recessions uh, performed for infantile isotropia and uh, with an increased number of adjustable sutures being performed. What would be interesting to see is whether uh, the one of the precipitous declines in surgery is actually from improved technique. Uh, and there's just a significantly lower reoperation rate, uh, whereas with adjustable sutures uh, or just improved technique uh, in non-adjustable uh, suture strabismus surgery, um, whether the reoperation rate is significantly declining, uh, which might significantly change the number of strabismus surgeries uh, occurring on a yearly basis. Um, in addition to that, um, the techniques uh, are perhaps uh, with more pediatric ophthalmologists uh, better trained, um, perhaps inappropriate surgeries which might be fixed with uh, either refraction, uh, accommodative esotropia, um, or through uh, other methods um, may be declining. Um, perhaps we're treating uh, the accommodative esotropes at an earlier age to allow fusion uh, to stabilize uh, and not allow the uh, esotropic strabismus to decompensate um, could also um, be, a, be a significant factor in, in the decline. Again, the, uh, this is obviously um, all anecdotal data. However, the anecdotal data doesn't seem to uh, reflect the, uh, the numbers that were noted in the British, uh, in the British study as the, uh, as the author was describing. Thank you. Ask questions of Dr. Ong or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. Or Skype J Young MD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.